Hey everyone, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today on episode 202, we are covering parts one and two of The Arm of the Sphinx, volume two of the Books of Babel by Josiah Bancroft. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and joining me again is Lauren McCaffrey. Hey guys. <laughs> Before we head into the episode itself, a quick reminder that we're on Patreon. Support for the show there helps keep the lights on and gives you access to all kinds of fun bonus content, such as exclusive episodes, exclusive original fiction, and much more. Now, you'll have to pardon me, because today's summary is going to be a bit shorter than usual. We're recording very late after a long day, and mostly I just want to get into the thick of things. So, we pick up the story with Thomas Senlin, a.k.a. Captain Tom Mudd, on the pirate ship Stone Cloud. They engage in various pirate activities before he finds a potential lead to get into Pelphia. He must go to the ringdom above, the Silk Garden, and make a deal to gain access to the Black Trail of the Hods. The crew has a pitched battle with the Ararat, which cripples their ship, but they escape and manage to land at the Silk Garden. There, Thomas Senlin meets Luke Marat, but with the help of Voletta and Edith, escapes before they can be forced into becoming part of Marat's Hod Revolution. As they sail away, Edith finally reveals the truth of her arm and the deal she made with the Sphinx. So, before we, like, go into style hardcore, I just want to kind of finger on the pulse. How you feeling about the books of Bible? Uh, you know, I, I'm interested in some characters at this point. Senlin's still not my favorite ever. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm intrigued by the upper levels and yeah. the deeper plots within the tower. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, clearly the Sphinx. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so for myself, uh, I... You know, I loved the first half of Senlin Ascends. I liked the second half, but not as much. And here, I think, I think I like this. I, I like it more now than I did at the end of the first book, but less than halfway through the first book. Um, the story has become more of like a high fantasy adventure than I wanted it to be. Um, like I, what I really enjoyed about the first half of seven of sins was the, the immediacy, the, the intimacy of it, the kind of small scale pettiness of it. <laughs> and now he's been like dragged into, you know, these massive plots and, and we're getting pitched airship battles and, and, you know, crazy stuff like that. And it's, it's fun, but it's not exactly what I was looking for from the series. However, I think it, it's important what you said that you are intrigued by the upper levels. That is the biggest thing at this point that is yanking me along. Bancroft has done an excellent job of igniting the imagination. We have seen five levels of the tower. And again, we don't exactly know how many layers there are. Um, 
we had the one quote from the first book that said there may be either 32 or 46 uh, ringdoms levels. I thought it was more than that. You said that the... Uh, the last time. Yeah, the last time mm-hmm. and I pulled up the quote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the... Like, he has made each level so distinct and unique. The creativity of it is fascinating. So unique. And I... Huh, Drew? I didn't say so unique. Yeah, you did. I said so distinct and unique. Okay. Okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But, so, there's just this rich potential in going up the tower. I, uh, I definitely expect we're going to continue going up. I think Pelthia right now is pretty ironclad and this is going to be a situation where we have to go up before we can go back down. And that excites me. We've gotten some hints, you know, with the, the, the clouds breaking through the clouds to the upper levels you know, the idea of the just untold treasures, um, you know, the, the gold bar and, and there's apparently sparking men. I couldn't tell if sparking was a curse, like a Sanderson style, like, Oh, those rusting guys. No, no, Um, I don't think so. Or if this is a specific descriptor and there are people who spark, no, I don't um, think so. I think they're automatons. Yeah, well, that's where I was going with okay. it. Is is I, I think this is a, um, they're engines. They're yes, yeah, um, agents of the Sphinx. And unless there's another, ooh, if there are multiple factions of engine creators, yeah, maybe mm, that could be fun. Uh, but yeah, so there just is so much rich setting potential that and and I want to point out like I'm not saying I dislike this I am still very much enjoying this I I was engrossed in the story for the first half of this um but I part of why I'm so engrossed is that I have high hopes for where we're going um I want to see Bancroft's creativity on full display so that said, uh, there is still a surprising amount of style to talk about with this book. Yeah. Um, which is not always the case. You know, we've we've covered lots of different multi-book series on the podcast, and very often after the first couple of episodes, we start running out of pertinent things to talk about with the writing style. Um, because authors tend to do just kind of the same thing over and over. Here, the biggest thing that stood out to me was how he really leans into the omniscient narrator here. In the first book, I I picked up on it being an omniscient narrator where there were a couple of points where it was like, the narrator is sort of, we're getting this top-down view of Senlin, but everything was around Thomas Senlin. Well, I mean, yeah, like you said, it was more closed off and you liked that. Yeah, and now... We have, we're in the heads of everybody in the crew, even some random characters like the, the clown nobleman 
who's trying to get in the pants of his maid and like this brought on a little bit of um a little bit of a struggle for me it reminded me of what i disliked in dune where we get head hopping like not even within scenes but like within paragraphs where we'll have you know like there were multiple points that i highlighted during the uh the craziness in the silk garden when they're fleeing from the golden zoo back to the ship and we'll have thomas's point of view and then like in a paragraph and then he'll ask Edith something or tell Edith something. And then we get a quote from her responding. And then suddenly we're in her head, like from sentence to sentence, it's just like, boom, boom, we're, we're jumping heads. And that was the same kind of stuff that really frustrated me the first time I read Dune. So I can tell you the transition is much more seamless in the audiobook. Well, seamless is the problem. I don't want it to be seamless. I want there to be divisions for point of view. Uh, that's okay. why I okay, have that's not. Hmm. How do I want to say? I it just goes much easier because it's it's easy for you to change your voice with your character in an audio form. Hmm. Whereas, like, it's not like you can, or it's not normally done that you change your color in the text. To show new character or you I, I, I I'm not sure it, so my issue with it isn't that like I have trouble distinguishing between them well is it's, it jarring it's the fact that we are jumping from point of view to point of view this is one of the things I don't like about an omniscient narrator I prefer a close third person where we stick to discrete chunks like this chapter or this part of the chapter is this character's point of view. And we're going to get this whole scene from that character's point of view. We're not going to jump from character X to character Y to character Z all in the same paragraph. Okay. And that's happening here. Okay. I guess I just assumed that you didn't like it because it can be jarring. No, no, it's, I, I mean, there, there can be instances where it's jarring, but uh, I think well, maybe jarring is the right word, but it's not jarring in the way the transition happens. It's jarring in the fact that the transition is there at all. Um, I don't know. It's it, This is a writing style that used to be much more prevalent, uh, and it's for sure a, a subjective thing. Um, and it is one that is particularly strong for me because my formative reading experiences were typically books that used that close third person perspective. Like I, when I think about the books that I became obsessed with and, and formed that cornerstone of the reader and writer that I am today, it's things like the wheel of time and the X-Wing books in the Star Wars expanded universe and the rune Lords and the darkness series and a song of ice and fire. And all of these use that deliberate close third person narrator. Whereas the only thing that I really distinctly remember reading 
from a young age that didn't use that type, that used a more omniscient narrator, was Lord of the Rings. So, and, so you, and even then, Lord of the Rings typically stayed within one character's perspective. It was just from a little further away. It didn't, like, hop from head to head of, you know, four or five characters in the same scene. So it's kind of uncomfortable because it's unfamiliar? Uh, n- no, not, not that it's unfamiliar. It's just not what I like. It's not what I grew up reading and and uh, what became my preference for storytelling. I don't mind it at all. Okay. I, I probably would in another book. I could see it. You know what? I guess I didn't really... I wasn't bothered in Dune either. Hmm. As I recall, you liked Dune more than I did. Yeah, I think I did. It took me two tries to read Dune. I read it, or I started reading it once in college, and I was so annoyed by the head hopping that I put it down. But you warned me. pages. You warned me going into it that that was annoying to you. And honestly, it really was kind of a side note for me. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I didn't love it as much as most people. Yeah, I mean, there there are rabid Dune fans out there. Whereas, like, Foundation, for me, immediately had me. Huh. Which is... Yeah, that's also fascinating because... Now, I haven't read all of Foundation, but I've read bits and pieces from... Uh, you know, the, the short stories and things around Foundation from that universe. And I was never really sucked in all that much. Uh, but to bring it back to, you know, the Arm of the Sphinx and, and Bancroft's style, I just find it fascinating how much more he has leaned into this head-hopping, omniscient style Whereas in the first book, it was pretty limited to just Thomas Semlin. I think it's a matter of confidence. He finished the first one. It went well. He feels like he can do a lot more. And we're more familiar with the world, so he doesn't feel like he's going to lose us when he hops into, you know, in the very beginning, the crew of another ship. Oh, sure, yeah. Now, the other thing that I that crosses my mind when I consider all this is that as I understand things, Senlin Ascends was a self-published book. This book was not self-published. This was the first in the series that was published by Orbit, that the success of Senlin Ascends attracted the attention of big publishing houses and he got a contract And so this is the book that went through the more traditional publishing and editing process and story direction where he most likely, and of course I I wasn't there, I I don't know what his process was going through self-pub, but most likely had more direct collaboration and more um, direction, editorial direction than the first book. Then they probably said, go for it. Yeah, I wonder if it is a situation where his editor said, 
you know, look, you have an omniscient narrator in the first book, but you don't really use that omniscient narrator that much. This is a tool available to you. Go ahead and use it. Mm. So, yeah, it's... I felt like he was having fun with it. Oh, certainly. I mean, when I think of Josiah Bancroft having fun with this book, I think of that Pell nobleman watching the battle at the Ararat. No, the, the, the other ship too. Like he goes through their crew's heads and then he goes through the captain's head. I think he was having fun with it. Oh, oh, at the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Um, yeah, so while it may not necessarily be to my taste, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a problem with the book. Uh, it's just a speed bump for me while I'm reading it. And despite that speed bump, I am still greatly enjoying the story. Okay, how do you how do you feel like the about the chapter intros? We have two mm. new books here. Mm, mm-hmm. So yeah, most of them through part one are from the logbook. His journal. Yeah, which he has turned into his journal, uh, much to his chagrin. And then in part two, we start getting more from the uh, the Silk Garden books the what is it the inauguration of the silk garden and then like the uh the manor the book of manners um well there's one that's right like of traditions way. and yeah that's the i don't remember the exact title it's something right of way and it was ways something like that here it is folkways and right of ways yeah. in the silk gardens anon yeah who and that's the one that uses gentle reader <laughs> which uh, apparently annoys Thomas Sandlin, and, and I think that's funny because it would also annoy me. <laughs> I mean, also half the stuff it says makes no sense at all. So there's... Uh, he's really leaning into the world-building aspects of, of it now, uh, where he's not just using it to build the setting of the Silk Gardens, but he's using it to set up the political landscape. Uh, set up the conflict between the Pels and and their neighbors. Sure. Uh, it's... Um, I like it. I, in a certain way, it's more effective than the epigraphs in the first book. Mm, but at I the same know. time, like, the, the first book was more... Like, it did a lot of the same things, but it was more obscured. Because we didn't know that the Everyman's Guide was so false. I mean, we figured it Deliberately out. Deliberately false. Yeah. And But once you start realizing that, then it becomes fun, almost a game, to read those epigraphs and say, okay, how is this getting twisted? And how is this going to apply and hint at things to come? Whereas this I, feels to me more straightforward. Maybe there's another layer to it. If so good for Bancroft because I'm not picking up on it. I think there is. So uh, let me here. I'll, I'll read one of them from the folkways and right, right of ways in the silk gardens. Okay. We are each of us a multitude. I am not the man I was this morning, nor the man of yesterday. I am a throng of myself cued through time. We are gentle reader, each a crowd within a crowd. Oh yeah, totally. So that, that is 
evocative of what Senlin is going through, that he he is realizing that he has become a different person and he is making choices that he never would have imagined he'd make. Uh, and, and we see him in certain scenes reverting to his old self, becoming more like the headmaster and, uh, and, and then going back to the pirate or, or the genteel pirate, you know, so he, he wears many different hats. Literally. Literally and, and metaphorically. And so I think that is a, that epigraph is, you know, it's thematically appropriate for what Senlin is going through. Okay, why is it in a book about the gardens? What's the purpose of this? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm telling I, you, there's another layer here. Yeah. That's, I think, I think that's a good point to make. I don't know if there's an immediately obvious answer to it. Uh, there's nothing in the gardens that we saw that, like, had any sort of, I don't know, maybe it's a, a sense of a, a hint as to what Luke Marat is like, that he is, you know, there's a facade there. He's not who he, who he really appears to be. And, and in different situations, he may be different people. I don't know. So Senlin talks about reading it and says it's a book of manners. The anonymous author had the tedious habit of addressing his audience as gentle <laughs> reader. And his advice often lapsed into metaphysical non sequiturs, mm -hmm. which were further disrupted by amateur drawings of the different features of the gardens. Senlin made it through the first chapter before concluding the book was an intellectual spittoon overflowing with dribble. You see, it, the cynical part of me, the pragmatic writer part of me says that was Bancroft saying, you know, like, I want to do this thing with my epigraphs. And the only way I can do it and justify it in world is by making this book have these non sequiturs. That he sort of reverse engineered it. What and about this other book, Inaugurations of the Silk Gardens, authored by a royal envoy yeah, named Salo. Salo? Yeah, that is the one that is much more directly building the world and the politics, where his commentary shows the attitudes of the Pels and. Algas. Oh, he's the Algas? No. Elfia and Algas. Yeah, but he's a Pell. Sallow is a pal. Is he? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because he's like the the Duke of Pelthia. He's like trying to get a knighthood from him. Oh, yeah, it does say that. Uh, but anyway, the, in, in function, it doesn't really matter which side he was even on because what it's giving us is a historical perspective and... <laughs> And our cat is having some adventures right now. Um, uh, a, a, you know, this this look into the past of the tower that Senlin could not know, but at the same time, it ties into uh, <laughs> it ties into the argument that he had with Madame Bata 
in the web. This idea of history versus record and how what Salo is writing is a history and it is uh, skewed. It's written with a jaundiced, uh, prejudiced eye with a purpose in mind other than to simply record what happened. And this is something that that is a, a fascinating theme for me as a reader, because, of course, one of my favorite series also deals with this idea, and that is The Black Company, where there are, at, at multiple points in that series, much is made of recording events as they happened, where certain people say, I want you to, like, no matter what happens, I want you to write it as it happened. I don't want you to sugarcoat it in my favor. I want you to say, you know, these are the events. And and that's an ongoing thing. And I wonder if this is going to become a greater theme or if this is going to stay a sub-theme of the series. I, well, okay. So more of what she says is reality is too messy to fall into a neat narrative that a historian is going to write. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the the inauguration is an example of what she hates because he is taking something that as we have found is very messy and he's making it seem clean and because he wants something exactly exactly so what does this other author this anonymous author want I don't know if that's a good question. It's tough to say because the author is anonymous. We don't know anything about him. Well, or her. we didn't we didn't know what the first authors wanted who wrote Every Man's Guide. Well, we do though, because it's a it's a marketing tool. Sure. They're trying to sell the tower. But we don't know exactly who wrote it. We know that they were commissioned to write it and they are not of the tower. Sure. I think that's a, a different situation from the anonymous author of the... Well, of course it is. Yeah. Their their motives are different. I just don't... I want to figure them out mm-hmm. more. And we, and we yeah. have uh, more confirmation from Madame Bata that those were marketing tools. Yeah. Yeah, we do. But she doesn't know all. No, she doesn't. As we can see when we get to the Silk Gardens. Yep. Yeah. Oh, she, well, mm. she's right and she's wrong. She warns him, but she doesn't say every. She doesn't know everything. The question. She the says, question "I there have been is, told." The question there heard. is: Is she wrong, or did she withhold information? No, she says, "I have been told, and I have heard." She does not say, "This is my information. This is what I know." She doesn't. I'm just saying. She, she can lie. use that. Yeah, she's not lying, but she is omitting. And the question is: Is she omitting because she doesn't know, or is she omitting for ulterior motives? I think she doesn't know. Okay. Because if she was all knowing, she wouldn't have to ask all of his story to add it to the record. Oh, I'm not saying she's omniscient. 
Of course but, not. But, but she I, her threads don't reach everything is what I'm telling you. I do you. think she knew more about the situation in the Silk Gardens than she let on. I'm not sure she did. Uh, I, I think she deliberately withheld information because she thought he was lying to him about the crumb. She knows he's lying. Yeah, and that's why she withheld information. But I'm pretty sure they talked about it before they talked about it as a crumb. But she knew. She knew about the crumb. She just kept that question for the very end to put him off balance. She didn't know he was going to lie at that point. So why would she? Well, he it? started off with a lie. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. But she didn't know if so, he was going to lie about the crumb. No, no, she didn't. But, like, I, I, I think. She knew from the get-go that he was unstable and not necessarily trustworthy. And because of that, she withheld information. Why? Uh, she wants him to find his wife. I don't know. I, like, it's so tough to say because they're... He admitted that he has the painting... And he still doesn't know what the deal is with this painting and why it is such a big deal. I think she does know why. She absolutely knows why. Yeah. And, and he, but he didn't ask that, about that. She's using him as a tool. She's, or maybe not a tool, but she's like, I want to put this piece on the chessboard and see what happens. So she pointed him at Marat, who would, you know, who is part of this game, who knows what this painting is. And that would be inherently yeah. dishonest. Why make such a big deal about honesty and then do something so inherently dishonest? People can be hypocrites. I don't know that she is yet, and I'm choosing to believe that she's not. Okay. I'm more cynical about her than you are, it seems. <laughs> but that's that's what's fun about this, right? Like, we, we have different interpretations of different characters. Um. And that's one of the things that's really good about this story is that Bancroft leaves character motivations and actions up for interpretation. Uh, everything is not cut and dry. And these are the stories that uh, bring value on rereads, where once you have the answers, you can come back and read through again from a different perspective and see, okay, why was I thinking X when Y was actually what happened? Or I know how we got to the end here, but it may still be up for interpretation as to how we got there. You know, yeah. it, th this is one of those uh, examples of how this series does feel like Gene Wolfe. Yeah. Why were your predictions so off the first time? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was, I, I was like way off on a lot of things in, in the, uh, first half of Sin Lina Sons. Um, but I, I don't think I've ever missed more wildly on a book on inking out loud than I have with that, which really? is fun. Yeah. <laughs> Most often like it, it, you get kind of jaded at a certain point where you've read so much and you start recognizing story beats. And I think why I missed so much is because I wanted him to not do the same story beats. I was like, I want him to subvert my expectations in, in these ways. He's a new writer. 
Yeah, and then he didn't. Because he's a new writer. But that's not necessarily, like, y- you can be a new writer and do something unexpected. Sure. Like. But he's not, so. he's not, like. I don't know. I came in with high expectations. Okay. People recommended these books because I like Gene Wolfe. Those Just are, saying. Yeah, those are very high expectations. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But... Do you have any other style points you want to talk about? Or shall we move into characters? Because we, we actually have some pretty fun character and, and plot stuff to talk about. I feel like I'm going to remember something at some point in our character talk. Mm, and I'll that's bring possible. It up. Yeah. Well, let's let's start with Thomas Sennon, Tom Mudd. Uh, I think the big, the big thing here, uh, I know what my answer to this question is, but I want, I want yours. Um, is he still actively using Chrome? What do you mean actively? Do you think he's just suffering extended long-term consequences of one overdose, or is he still using it? What and lying are you to talking himself? about? Every time he pulls out the painting of her, mm-hmm. he's sniffing it. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that we we're on the same page here. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's in our in our last chapter here. It's it's made explicitly yeah. clear, even if it wasn't obvious before that. Yep. That he he doesn't see her for a number of hours, and, and he's, he's got withdrawal. And symptoms. he's got withdrawals. He's got the tingling and and the itching in his and organs. And he's like, and, man, yeah. I really miss her. Yep. I need to see it so badly. Mm-hmm. And he sits with the painting, and immediately and he sees decides it. and decides like. Um, I'm never going to leave this painting behind again. I'm going to yeah, take it with me wherever I go. Yeah. He's like, wow, I didn't even think about the fact that Iron and and Adam may have sailed off with the painting. I'm never going to, you know, leave oh it behind my again. Oh, God. That yeah. was a complete yep. forehead slap for me. Yep. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I didn't think about the possibility of him repeatedly, accidentally using Crumb. Until Madame Bata brought it up just because there wasn't enough. Like, I don't, I didn't know enough about how crumb worked or how much time had passed where I was like, it is plausible that he's still suffering the effects of a, of an overdose. No. But once she brought up that idea, I was like, oh yeah, no, she's, she's totally right. And then, and then it was a matter of me having to think about, is this a case of him lying to himself and that he's, he's like actively using it where he like still has a store or something from the, the case or is it something else? And the more I considered it, the more I was like, Oh wait, no, it's the painting. He talks about at multiple points, how uh, the, like the painting is, is dirty because it's contaminated with crumb. And he's like, well, I can't clean it. I can't just like, wash it down because oh that'll ruin God, the, the paint. Um, so I I think he is unaware. No. I I do. I think he's unaware of the fact that he is repeatedly consuming crumb. Consciously, he's unaware. Yes, exactly. Consciously. Subconsciously, he is absolutely aware. Yeah. So, but that, that makes it fun. Like, I'm not used to having a drug addict main character. But also he's lying to himself. Oh, deep, totally. Like, yeah. Deeply. Yeah. 
Yep. I I'm I'm upset with him for that. But also like <laughs> I realized the minute that he started saying the only way to clear my head with her being around all the time is to look at the painting again and again. Yeah. And I was like, what what in the what is wrong with you? Well, and I like the uh, the probably the most subtle foreshadowing of what it actually is is how she appears as paint for a while, and that's when he's withdrawing. That's when he, he's gone without for a while in Ugh. in the Golden Zoo. That's when she appears with paint, and then once he's back with the painting and gets another dose, she appears as herself again. Heavy, heavy self. Yeah. Denial. It's fun. It's good writing. Yeah, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm like in that final chapter. I am so <laughs> very annoyed with him. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. <laughs> For putting them all in yeah. danger. Yep. And things are only getting t- harder. Now let's talk about Edith, who finally came clean about her deal with the Sphinx to be a wakeman, to be a a guard for the tower. Uh, Well, she doesn't know what exactly that is. She doesn't know what her assignment will be, but But she knows the possibilities. She talks about how everything that she has been told, she takes with a grain of salt because she doesn't think that the former captain knew exactly what he was talking about. She says that. She says that. She says, he might not have it right, but this is what he told me. And this is what I've gathered. Mm. Yep. Yep. I mean, she signed the contract. She, like, talked with the Sphinx and went there and, like, got the information. And she was heavily fevered when she signed the contract. But she said it was afterward that she was like, wait, what did I sign? And that's when she, like went and looked at it and was like, oh, this is a problem. I could be auctioned off, contracted out to be an assassin or an enforcer or whatever. Like, yeah. Yeah, but the examples that of of what people who are in her situation have done, she says, is muddied. I don't remember that. Yeah, she talks about learning from him. Billy, I, I don't remember that at all. Was. Like, Billy was a, he's like, I don't, I don't know, like a recruiter. Yes. Hmm. I, I, my impression of her information was that it came from the Sphinx and from her contract. Nope. She asks him. And he gives her stories. She says, I don't want to pick up where Billy Lee left off. He was a Sphinx's headhunter. He scouted everywhere he went for maimed and desperate souls. He was such a cruel opportunist. He can be very persuasive. I'm afraid he'd put a tin eye in Adam's head. Blah, blah, blah. Did the Sphinx pay Lee to supply him with recruits handsomely? This means the Sphinx has use for money. I don't remember any talk about Lee telling her things. I think it might have been in the last book. But, yes. Definitely not. Are you sure? She doesn't reveal anything in the last book. 
This scene at the end of part two is the first time she reveals anything about her contract with the Sphinx. Right. But she talks about Billy Lee giving her information. I don't know if it's right there or if it's somewhere else. Hmm. But she does. Hmm. Okay. If you say so. Mm Mm-hmm. But anyway, I I think uh, this scene where she finally does tell Senlin about what this contract is, like that was really exciting to me. Where I'm like, finally, we're getting some answers about the secrets of the tower. Yeah. I do think it's funny. So I, um, like, she is a really direct person, Edith. I appreciate like that she, about her. She's a straight shooter. Yeah, I like yeah. it. Yeah. And this is, by the way, our first time with Senlin being sober in this part. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. Which is interesting looking at his actions, thinking about. When he's more or less high. Yeah. On, on what he chooses to do when he's high. Yep. Hmm. Uh, let's see, Adam. Okay, Adam is fascinating to me in this part. Uh, I do like how one of my predictions from the other, uh, from the second episode on Sinless Sense is really coming true, and that's how he's realizing he can't just be the protector of his sister anymore. That that like they 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 want different things. They have to kind of go their own ways. And he decides I have to but it it really frustrated me where he's like, I have to chase after something else. And so he has this really unhealthy idea of of life. And like it, similarly the way he he learns an important lesson about like, I have to prove that I'm trustworthy to Thomas, but the way he decides he's going to go about doing it is this just like ridiculous. I have to get him a treasure. Like I have to pay him. That's what the towers taught him. Yeah. And it's frustrating. <laughs> Cause he's <laughs> really a child. Frustrating. Yeah. He's very immature. Yes. And and it's the same thing. When he realizes he needs to let Valetta go, he's like, well, instead of chasing after her and protecting her, I have to chase after something else. And I think oh, that's geez. a really unhealthy perspective on life, that you have to constantly be chasing something. Yeah, unless he wakes up, he's dead. Yeah. Tower's going to eat him alive. And then meanwhile, Iron, big fan. Oh, yeah. She's great. Even though she kills someone? Oh, the the, the squirrel dude. Yeah, that was a, that was a frustrating scene, but but at the same time, so like this is the thing that I like about Iron is she's endearing. Um, I think some Absolutely. of the most emotional scenes in this in this book have been with her, uh, the protectiveness, the like maternal instinct she has toward Voletta, and then the scene. After uh, she and Adam get back to the ship, when she saves him from the fire, after uh, he saves her from the 
the spider eater, they have this conversation where like it, it was one of the most real natural conversations I've seen in a book in a long time where Adam thinks to himself, like there's always been this disconnect between us, but now after this moment, I think we've just become friends and they have a conversation that's punctuated by work talk. It's like, Hey, can you do this and this? Give me a hand with this. By the way, how do you feel about this? Why do you like Valletta so much? What is, you know, and, and so it was just this extremely smooth flow and, and it made the whole thing feel real and emotional in a, a very pleasant way. Like I loved that scene. Well, I think it's easy with her because it's such a big contrast from her normal demeanor to get emotions from her because she is usually so stoic and stiff. Yeah, definitely. That's why it feels big when she does, because for her character, her letting herself feel and think about emotions is Mm -hmm. unusual. Yeah. I mean, I was talking about that scene from, from the writer's perspective, like how Bancroft wrote that conversation, deciding to intersperse work talk with personal talk and how that's such a genuine thing that I have experienced in my conversations, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, that's something that, uh, you know, a lot of authors just don't get right writing their dialogue. You know, one of the biggest criticisms of Brandon Sanderson is that his dialogue isn't great. And I think that's, that's a legitimate criticism. His characters often don't talk like real people. I think it's maybe partially a a matter of how much time do you, as the writer, spend with other people and observing these things. (laughs) Yeah, it it definitely could be. And he was a teacher. He had to observe and understand his students to teach well. Wait, Bancroft was? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he calls himself a lapsed professor. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't I, know. What... I, I really should have done more uh, background research before these episodes. Yeah, I, doesn't that's it normally, make sense? It th- does. It really does. Senlin is a teacher. Yeah, it it, it does make me wonder now how much of a self insert Thomas Senlin is. Mm, I I don't I don't think he's much of one because their voices are very very different. Hmm. When I read his. AMA, his voice was very different Mm. and his Mm. view and I don't know. I don't see it. I, but also that might be me hopefully inserting like (laughs) that. I don't want anybody to be like Senlin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You just don't like Thomas Senlin. No, but, but I do want to talk about, I think they say it in the audio, Erin. Iren, yeah. Um, she is dealing with her own issues here, where she's like, "I am slowing down." Yeah, my value is lowering. Yeah, she's like, either the flies are getting faster, or my hands are getting slower. But she's dealing with that at the same time yeah. as Adam, 
dealing with his own. So they are both in a vulnerable position where they can have those talks. Yep. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, it's well really written. good. It's really good. That that yeah that part. Um, are there any other characters that you want to talk about? We haven't talked about Volita. Okay. By the yeah. way, that's how they say it. Volita? Yeah. Not Voletta? Well, it's a, he's a British narrator. They do whatever they want with vowels. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. Um, I... She's still not my favorite character. Why? She had some growth here. She did. Uh, I was I was really impressed by like it was very in character for her, but I was also impressed at her just instant willingness to shave her head. Um, like you would think that, uh, you, you know that that is a a mark of pride right like that she has this beautiful she, hair she but has she, continually not cared yeah and and so this is why i'm impressed is that she is such a prideless person she doesn't care about ego or status what are you talking about yeah she does mm. it's just not about physical appearance i i think what it is like in in, in any case that she cares about pride it is internally focused of like like so we get this anecdote of the beam right and and what it is is just she wanted the adventure uh do you and, remember and moment, how she timed it yes i do lauren okay okay let me talk please she does this whole thing with the beam thinking i'm going to get value i'm going to derive satisfaction out of it i'm going to get a whole train of people to come watch and prove to them that I'm doing this the right way. And then ultimately she's robbed of any satisfaction. She's left hollow and to the point where she forgets what beam it, it even was in the first place. And, and I think that was a moment of self-realization where she's like, I don't want that kind of validation. I want experience. I want adventure. I want adrenaline, not prideful boasting and if she had wanted prideful boasting her time with rodeon would have been a death trap for her because she would have succumbed to the praises heaped upon her by the audiences and the bouquets that these rich men were buying for her and everything and so she is ultimately a very prideless character she is just a simple woman who wants adventure mm, i i think you're giving her a more virtuous sheen than she actually has um i think that she she virtuous okay taking pride away yeah yeah virtuous i think she is prideful i think the big reason why that wasn't a trap for her with the show was because again it's the same show. You you have the same issue for her, which is she needs to move on. She needs to be challenged. It's not a challenge if you've done it 500 times. It's boring again. She's bored. I'm sure it was fun for a minute. Sure. 
And then she did it again. And she was like, and we're not moving on. And I'm stuck. This goes back to the point where like, it's not about the pride. I think it is. I think she, it's not the, it's not the point. The pride is not the point, but it was to have everybody see her do it in the beginning. Yeah. And then she realized after doing that once that, oh, this isn't actually what I want. She didn't. And she never did that again. She didn't get the accolades from people. She didn't get the recognition. If she had gotten that, she wanted it. She absolutely got the reactions from people. They were freaking out when she was getting up on the beam and the train was coming. Like. She didn't get enough. I think she, uh, that is not at all the the lesson that I got from that scene. It was hollow. She doesn't walk away thinking, "Wow, I wish people had cheered me on more." She she thinks of like, "Wow, that was a letdown." Yes. The, the adventure of climbing on that beam. She doesn't even think about what other people thought. She thinks about the moment and her experience personally, and she thinks, "I'm just going to need to find higher wires." and higher and hotter steam. She doesn't think I'm going to need to get a bigger crowd or like we, we don't get any more about her being like, I'm going to find a higher wire and then draw a crowd again. There's nothing about other people. There's nothing about that external validation. It's all internal, just finding adventure. Yeah, she, to she goes home and everything's the same. Nothing, nothing has changed. Sure. She expects something to have changed. From the people around she, her. No, I think she expects something to have changed internally. And it and realizes that there isn't something there. I don't think she's obsessed with getting the accolades anymore. I think it is about her personal achievements for mm-hmm. herself. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's completely out of the equation. She, she needs a little bit of validation. I don't get that at all. But also, like, her looks do not matter to her at all. So, she, like, shaving her head so, is nothing. Yeah, I, I also think um, part of the shaving her head thing is that it's a way for her to shed um, a memory of Rodion's brothel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which yeah. I thought she was teasing Rodion a little bit. And she definitely was not. Yeah, it turns out that was like a survival coping mechanism. But also like a dad. Like she's terrified of him. I don't think she's scared. I think she's Oh, she's definitely pissed. scared of him. She was definitely scared of him. Yeah, she was angry as well. But those those are two emotions that often go hand in hand. I think the anger trumps. But... But I like her as a character, and I'm excited for what she can do, especially for the crew. She clearly is important for this to continue on. Yeah, I'm really curious to see how much the crew stays together. Like, I I very much think that even though they got away... Um, Semlin is going to realize I have to become a Hod to get there. Maybe. I think he's going to become a Hod, and I don't see the rest of the crew doing that. So what I about think... Valida? No. I don't think she'll she'll become a Hod. I don't think they have to do this path anymore. I I I don't 
like I don't think they're going to necessarily get into Pelthia via the Black Trail. Um, the the further we go in, like I said, I I think they need to go up the tower before they can go down, and it's going to be a like they get into Pelthia via a more normal route, but it's going to be in dramatically altered circumstances, or maybe he like reignites the war and that opens new avenues into the ringdoms or something like that. I think you're ignoring the big, big thing. What's that? The Sphinx. You think he is going to make a deal with the Sphinx and get like safe passage? Yeah, but it's not going to be without awful complications and regrets, heavy regrets. That's possible, but I I don't see that. Just thematically, he has had so many times now where he thinks he's going to get, like, make a deal with somebody with more power than him to get access to something, and then it doesn't work out. Uh, I think oh, it's not going to work I out. I think it is always going well, to be the way he achieves his goals is via his own agency. It will be via his own agency. But I'm saying that the Sphinx has a key here. And if he became a Hod and traveled the back ways, then he's immediately found out. Lukamara has a lot of agents. Oh, well... I don't... Yeah, he is not going away. That guy is going to continue being an antagonist, and Senlin is going to have to deal with him. Yeah, so going that way is not safe. Right now. I don't see him going away quickly. It doesn't have to be quickly. I don't think... I'm not talking about this book. I'm talking about full series, like, he's going to keep going up the tower. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, hmm. One thing you didn't talk about with Thomas is his dealings with his ghost Maria and what that says about him. Ugh. That's why you avoided it? Oh, you don't I like it. I hate that. Mm. I hate that plot point. Um, <laughs> ghost Maria is awful. She's so obnoxious. I mean, she's the manifestation of his deepest insecurities. So like, yeah, but she's cruel. She is cruel. Um, Like great literary device. Very frustrating. (laughs) Why? Because he's beating himself up. Yeah. And and he is allowing himself to become a slave to a substance. Which is something that I, like, personally have a, an extremely strong aversion to. Like, the idea of being addicted to something is terrifying to me. And the fact that he isn't even consciously aware that he's addicted is terrifying to me. Very frustrating. But you can be addicted to... Not chemically, but to behaviors and things. Yeah. Yeah. But we are talking about chemical addiction right now. We're talking about drugs. Yeah, but I I kind of accept 
the other types as part of life. Sure. And they're, they are still chemical, just not in the same way. Neurotransmitters instead. Okay. I feel like we're talking about two different things, though. Like, you can be, you can have, like, a chemical addiction in, in the, like, strictest biological sense of it, but that doesn't damage your life the way a hard drug does. Yes, it does. Have you ever seen, like, severe OCD? That's different. That's, mm-hmm. like, a built-in flaw like biological flaw in how your body works. You can That's not you it. making a choice to introduce a foreign substance into your body and get addicted to it. Not always. There are there are components of it that can be from a substance. Okay, then it's about the substance. Like, and then you stop the substance and you're left with it still. But it's still triggered by the substance. That's my point. Or your, or your behavior. Sorry. I had to do it. I guess I'm annoyed at his, his weakness here. Yeah, I am too. But also I, I saw him as weak from the get go. (laughs) I'm just, I just didn't expect it to be drugs here. No. No, I didn't expect it to be drugs either. Um, and yeah, he, like, he absolutely has weaknesses, and that's why he, I think he's a compelling protagonist. You, you can't have a, a character with satisfying conflicts and growth without having those weaknesses. Yeah, but some of them are nicer. Like, um... <laughs> Yeah, some of them are easier than others. <laughs> like you're in dealing with getting older. Yeah. I mean, like, this is one of the reasons I love The Acts of Cain so much. That series has some of the lowest lows mm. for its characters that I've ever read. But because of that, when when you reach those highs, they are the highest highs. I love They are the that. most satisfying, yes. you know, yes. moments of catharsis and apotheosis. Like Some of them, like... I will never forget the images in my head. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that I'm going to feel similarly with, you know, I may be really, really frustrated with Senlin's failings so far in this book, but I'm hoping that the manner in which Bancroft resolves them and grows Senlin as a character, you know, that ultimately it's, fulfilling and satisfying yeah i would i would like to like him more yeah it would be really sad if he found maria and was not worthy of her struggle that she's having while she's away from him Mm -hmm. but the tower should bring that out of him the struggle should bring that out of him his strengths hopefully yeah. Even though the tower is a pit of depravity. But it's a it's a crucible. You know. That the tower is going to burn away. It's going to put him under pressure and burn away. 
the flaws that are holding him back. But it brings them out in everybody else. Well, that's the point of a crucible is it puts you under pressure. And the question is, will it break you or will it shape you into something stronger? It breaks everybody. We only have him as an example of unbroken. Yeah. Well, mm, well, he's kind of broken. He's done. But but nobody that we're seeing is at the end of their arc yet. <coughs> True. Yeah. I mean, but he did kill a bunch of people. Yeah, he did. And he's stolen. Mm-hmm. How entertained were you by the, the book theft scene? Oh. <laughs> oh. Like like they're they're banging on the door and hearing all of these and he's like, Oh my gosh, it, it, am I gonna open the door and, and get greeted with a cannon or something? And it turns out they were just running around trying to prepare tea to, oh. you know, like receive guests. And then they go back to the ship and they're all in a terrible mood. Yeah, everybody's in a bad mood. Everybody's in a bad mood. Yeah, we have an outside observation there where it's like, why are they all so pissy? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, how do you feel about Squit? Squit? Voletta's flying squirrel. That's okay. That's They pronounce it differently in the book. S-Q-U-I-T. Oh. Squit. That's how it's spelled? Yeah. Huh. Uh I love animals. Why wouldn't I <laughs> be excited that she has a pet? I, I'm kind of annoyed by it. What? Um, like, it feels to me like a little too much of a forced pathos thing where, like, oh, there hasn't Drew. been any value to the plot of this thing other than to like be cute and make people go, Oh, look at the little squirrel. Like I, why doesn't Valida deserve a little squirrel? She's isolated herself. Well, if she's if doing we better, got, if we got more from her points of view about like this squirrel being like a, a emotional health touchstone or something like that. Uh, okay. But we don't, okay. she just has the thing. I'll give you that. And then it runs around being cute. Like, I'll give you that. So um, it, it feels it feels a little to me like uh, the author is just trying to manipulate the reader via a low-hanging fruit. I mean, I guess it is a plot device in that she's got to be not paying attention for yeah. the Ararat battle to happen. Mm-hmm. And since she doesn't sleep. Yeah, that was, that was rough when I, like, I got exhausted when I heard the way she, like, she doesn't ever go into deep sleep because when she has to sleep, she's like, I'm going to sleep on the edge of something. So I can't fully relax. That is so. Like, that sounds like a miserable existence. That is so dangerous. Yeah. That is so dangerous. Mm. You start to slowly go insane. Mm-hmm. As someone who's recently dealt with sleep deprivation. Yeah. Yeah. You lose your mind. You can't think straight. And what it is, is you've got crap building up in your brain. 
that's not being cleared away by your sleep cycle. And it just gets overwhelming. Yeah. That's why people like prisoners go insane or are tortured with that. Mm -hmm. If, if I'm the author here, I use that where she makes a vital mistake or something crazy happens. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, do we have any other characters? Uh, did we skip somebody? Oh, we've, we we've, didn't talk about our antagonists. Luchmara and like the Hods. Uh, yeah, I mean... Do you find him compelling at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, super creepy. Uh, the scene of what Voletta witnesses. Mm. Um, and... Like, just that image of them, like, peeling up a bit of the moss, burying the guy, killing him, burying him, and, like, they threw him in, and he discovered they that they hadn't actually killed him yet, and so they just have a guy, like, kneel on his chest and choke him out, Ooh. and then they just roll the moss over him, and, and then the thing that got me the most was how they, like, tromp over it to even out the what they had just excavated i glossed over that like that was that was like a really brutal detail of like i don't know it just seemed so the whole thing's heartless but that in particular seemed so just awful Uh, yeah i mean you are you are slaves and you know how slaves are treated here Mm. and yet you're gonna do this to another being yeah yeah So, like, yeah, there's, I will say there's a a little bit of fatigue that I'm getting that every single place has this veneer of, oh, gentility, Mm. and beneath it is twisted, awful, you know. That's how I felt in the first book. I was already fatigued with that. Okay. And yeah, this was the first point where I felt that fatigue, where I was like, every place is exactly the same. Like I said, yeah. it's a pit. No, totally. But, but yeah, so, um, I don't know. I don't really have much else to say about this half of the book. Okay. Predictions. Oh, Beyond what I've already said, I think they have to go up the tower to go back down. I, I think mean, at some point he's going to become a hod. Uh, it, it feels like a, an essential part of the tower experience. And Thomas Senlin, as the protagonist, must undergo that. The hod? Yeah, becoming a hod. Mm, I'm not sure about that. I think next we deal with the phoenix there's a raw deal. Um, we either lose... The phoenix? Sorry, the sphinx. Oh, okay. I was like, did I miss a term? No, it's just late. Okay. It is late. <laughs> Which is why we should wrap up this episode sooner rather than later. So, we deal with the sphinx. We get a raw deal. Uh, 
bittersweet, whatever. We either lose Edith completely or we have her only partially. I don't think we're going to deal with the Sphinx at all in this book. I think the Sphinx is going to be a a, a long-term antagonist. Why well, call it Arm of the Sphinx then? Why is that the name of the book? Oh, by the way, I like the layers to that. Obviously, the Arm of the Sphinx physically, the arm the Sphinx gave to Edith... But we also get a metaphorical thing where she talks about, I could leave and go home. And she's like, I would have to assume the arm of the Sphinx doesn't reach that far. And I'm not going to make that bet. And I was like, ooh, I didn't consider that interpretation of the arm. Mm -hmm. Like, that's really nice. Um, obviously, it's it's a central theme to the book. It's a It's a plot major plot element, but I think you can have an encounter with the Sphinx without dealing with him. I don't think, I don't think the Sphinx is going away after this book. Of course he's not. Yeah. I'd be surprised. Yeah. I'd be very surprised. He seems like an integral figure and I kind of wonder if this is his tower. It's certainly, that's the impression we've been given. I mean, Senlin's like, well, it can't be the same person it's totally the it same person. It is the same person. Yeah. No, I didn't even like bat an eye when he said that. I was like, yeah. you're whatever, dude. Mm -hmm. You've, you've already learned yeah. a lot. Why, why are things still a surprise to you? Mm -hmm. I guess that's me being jaded with it. Well, I think Senlin is not fully, uh, like he, he has gotten his head around the, cynical depraved nature of the tower at this point but i don't think he has um gotten his hooks in the mystical and technological nature of the tower yet of course not he's barely seen anything yeah. like he started figuring out why the bottom ringdoms work the way they do or he's like this is all Yep. Building an engine for yep. something. Yep. But. But he's still naive. Yeah, exactly. So. Okay. Uh, wait, well, wait. My predictions. Drew. Oh, I was just asking. I wasn't done. I, oh, okay. All right. Keep going then. Uh, okay. Let's see. Uh, Valida's going to wander off in some way and get in over her head like she almost already did. Um, Twice. Yeah. Adam's making progress, but I don't see him having his full arc. I think we're going to have a bittersweet something mm. with him. Mm. Um, hmm. Eren has already shown her stripes. Uh, I think Eren's going to die this book. I don't want her to. I would prefer not. Why? Because she's dealing with her issues? Um... She, for two reasons. One, yes, she is dealing with getting older and slower and less able. Uh, we have that scene with her daydreaming about the attack on the ship. And she's like, this is normally her favorite part where she gets to envision herself landing every blow and winning. But, but this time she can't get it out of her head that she fails and stumbles and gets overwhelmed. Ugh. Um, and then 
on top of that, I feel like she is reaching the culmination of her, her arc that she has accepted her role as a maternal figure, um, as a protector. And she's going to, she's going to die protecting Vola. I, I would prefer that you're not right, but I, I feel like those are major red flags with me, but I think you are also her nightmares. I was like, welcome to, welcome to the rest of us where everybody has nightmares where their punches are like feathers. Oh, well, that's like literal dreams are different from daydreams. True. Yeah. It's so frustrating when you're trying to do anything like physical in dreams like I all have dreams playing hockey mm-hmm. and I can't ever like like uh, a, a recurring dream that I've had my entire life playing hockey, uh, especially as an inline hockey player where we play on a tile rink. In my dreams, I will be skating down the ring with the puck and the tiles in front of me will open up. Okay. And it becomes a, a rewind where I skate under the tiles and I come back out back where I started. <laughs> and it's so frustrating. <laughs> See, okay, that's that's much nicer than what I'm talking about. Like, my dreams are somebody comes after me for one reason oh, or another. Oh, you can't run away. No, and I try to defend myself. Oh, okay. And... I'm such a failure at fighting that like my blows don't do a thing to somebody. Oh, that's, that's very different from the normal dream phenomenon. Normally it's like you, you are trying to do a physical action, but you cannot do it. Like you're trying to throw a punch, but you can't actually throw a punch in your dream or you're trying to run away, but you can't actually run. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I will try and throw a punch and it'll just be like, I can't get oh, any strength okay, okay. behind it gotcha. or like I'll think that I've landed it and it's nothing. It's nothing. I didn't oh, okay. even move them. Yeah, yeah. 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 And I think that's probably because I've, I've never been in a real fight. Like hopefully you never are. I have sparred, <laughs> but that's not a real fight. Hopefully you never are. <laughs> so, uh, do you have any final predictions or shall we wrap this thing up? Go into the final draft. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, I think we might get a glimpse of Maria in this book, but it's going to be a glimpse. Like a, she's waving from the other room and she's taken away and we're like, ah! <laughs> okay, this was going to be my final prediction that I was going to end things on. Um, I think that gentleman from the airship is going to come back. We're going to get one more point of view from him and it's him seeing Maria and falling in love with Maria. Ugh. I don't like it. Okay. I I feel like there has to be something more to him. Why? Narratively, it would be so unsatisfying. He's a pill. Wait. Sorry. It would be so narratively unsatisfying just to have this one character that we get in his head points of view from for the sole purpose of showing us the battle that we're already seeing from our protagonist's points of view, like that, that, that doesn't do anything. No. So what I think it is, is we've established a track record for this guy 
where he sees a vulnerable, disadvantaged woman and he's like, gotta have that. And, and so we are going to see him later on in the book encounter Maria. No, the other point of him is, is not just that. The other point of him is, A, he's a Pell. B, he says, my commissioner. And we have why he is where he is, what he is trying to do. And so we get a view into the culture of these upper levels. That's not enough. Okay. That is not enough. I mean, I think we'll see him again, you but don't I don't need, think like You that. don't need to put a character, you don't need to give us a character's point of view. You could put that in epigraphs, if that's all that mattered there. You could put that in epigraphs. But he gave us a character's point of view, and this is a big deal, where he's the only, like, the only character who's not directly involved in the events of Thomas Senlin whose point of view we've gotten. And I think that's because he's setting him up to be a lens through which we finally see Mario. I mean, I don't think he's going away. Obviously he's a gentleman and I think he's going to show up if we get it to those upper levels. Well, lower levels now. Sure. Whatever. Pelfia is ring five. Yeah. I'm really but anyway, let's let's wrap this thing up and uh, let's let's talk final draft. Let's talk drinks. Uh, Lauren, what are you drinking? Okay, so it's not a beer this time. It yeah. is a semi-sweet hard cider. I, I need to actually have a sip of this. <laughs> it's five point two percent, which is good. Cider tends to be a little higher than that um and this is from shilling okay it's, it's pretty good yeah not too um, sweet it, you're right it, it's i don't think it's sweet at all actually it's definitely extremely apple-y but it's like dry apple um so they have three different scales on here uh dry to sweet smooth to sharp and still too sparkling and we're kind of midway with all three but on the maybe on the drier side they have it at a two out of five i like that these scales help me yeah that's interesting um ooh, they added malic and citric acid (laughs) i have added malic acid (laughs) it sucks oh boy because it is so powdery and light Mm. that you have to wear a mask if you're going to use mess with it because oh. you breathe it in and cough forever. Yikes. And the whole area where you've done it is just full of those particles in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Hate, hate that. Oof. Well, I am drinking. I oh, didn't no, say the you name. didn't say the name. Drew. You didn't say the name. You got to do the name. Okay. So this is for the books about the gardens and also We have an example of this in the rumor mill in that bar. I'm talking about local legends of Mm. what is in the upper tiers above the clouds. It's interesting to me that we have characters who are born in the tower or have spent, you know, multiple decades in the tower who still don't know. And they still have these legends about what is 
what is up there if I can only just get there? Yep. It's interesting. Yeah. Local legend. Very good. Love it. All right, for you. Okay, so for me, I am drinking a beer. I am drinking a classic. This is a a foundational American craft beer. Yeah. Uh, this is from Stone Brewing Company in uh, yeah Escondido, California. This beer not only is like a foundational American craft beer, but a foundational beer for me that it was kind of a gateway beer into like more aggressive flavors, more um, like more demanding on your palate. Uh, Like kind of opened my eyes to what craft beer could be. And of course, a decade later, really 11 years later, because I first had this when I was 21, um, I have found so much more than I could have ever imagined in terms of flavor in uh, in the world of beer. But this was one of those early beers that set me down the path. Uh, I'm not even sure, is this technically a strong ale? I thought it was, um, but it's, it's so been a minute. It's 7.2%. Like, it's... It, it's like a strong... I don't know. It, it, if I were to classify it, I would say it's like a strong amber. Um, But it's really... It's got a really strong, bitter hop profile that you don't expect in an amber ale. Ambers are like... You, you would... Maybe an imperial red ale, almost, this is. It's vegan. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But but either way, this goes out to that unnamed Pell nobleman. Also, Luke Marat. Also, the commissioner. Oh, geez. Also, lots of people in this series so far. But this beer is the one and only... Arrogant bastard. <laughs> it is, man. I mean, yeah, I would call it foundational. Yeah, th- this this beer is a big deal. I will say, I'm very sad. So I'm drinking. Um, this is a like a what what do you call it? a stovepipe can? Yeah. Um, I am sad because the first time I had this, and for the longest time. Uh, it would come in a 22-ounce bomber glass bottle. Yeah. And the back of the bottle had this whole hilarious <laughs> narrative about, like, like you're a noob and you're not ready for this beer. And it, it, it was it was specifically crafted. It was a narrative written by an arrogant bastard. <laughs> and I mean, it was so much fun. The can still insults you. The can does. It says drink fresh numbskull. And then at the bottom. Oh, at the bottom? Where? Oh, true arrogant bastards refuse to be ignorant. Know where your beer comes from. Yeah. But but it it's not the same without the whole, like, <laughs> five-paragraph essay. Yeah, I did like that. So. But I gotta say, I have not had this beer in 
probably six or seven years mm-hmm. at this point, um, maybe longer. Uh, like I said, this was a gateway beer for me. This was a, you know, an early example of what craft beer could be. And once I passed through that threshold and saw what craft beer could be, I sort of left this in the dust and it was a nice nostalgia trip. I mean, I, I poured this glass, took a whiff and I was like, Oh yeah, this beer is exactly the same as it was 11 years ago, which I appreciate there. Especially recently, there have been a lot of, similar gateway American craft beer foundational, you know, brands that have changed. Um, Fat Tire for New Belgium. Uh, They just completely changed the recipe, changed the style of the beer. It is no longer an amber ale. Uh, Rogue Brewing Company, the dead guy, their flagship beer was a Maybach and they've changed it to be an IPA now. And like, and it's it's sad where the, these are. What about Odell? Odell too has changed a couple of their IPAs. Um, I mean, Odell, their flagship IPA with the orange label on the elf is still the same recipe. Mountain Standard. Mountain Standard is oh boy, See? yeah. Um, but that was always a specialty beer, or it started as a specialty beer. It was. So Mountain Standard initially came out as a, I believe, a ten point two percent double black IPA. I love black And that IPAs. beer was incredible. And then after a year or two, they they released New Mountain Standard, and it was just black IPA. It was like 7.3%, um, much more toned down hot profile. And then a few years later, they changed it to just a hazy IPA. They call it a mountain-style IPA called Mountain Standard. And it's like... Man, bring back bring back the OG Mountain Standard. That was a great beer. So they actually they really have set what um, I guess you can call Mountain IPAs. It's supposed to be midway between mm-hmm. your New England and your West Coast. Yeah, and I would say that's pretty fitting for what they're. It doing. It is. I mean, every IPA I've had from Odell Brewing Company has been good. They are a masterful. They're a the great, great IPA brewer. Um, and this is coming from somebody who doesn't really love IPAs as a style in general. Uh, but like you go to the Odell Brewing, you know, tap room in Fort Collins, Colorado, and they always have like small batch pilot IPAs on tap, and they're always crazy good. You can trust them. Yeah. Yeah. So, but. Maybe, maybe that whole rant makes me an arrogant bastard. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> yeah, this beer's good. I'm I'm enjoying my... Yeah, cheers. Very nice. So, this has been episode 202 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we're going to be going right on through the rest of Arm of the Sphinx. Finishing off book two of the Books of Babel. As always, you can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash inkingoutloud to get access to our bonus content, which I am actively working on rejuvenating right now. Um, you know, Hopefully by the time this one comes out, I have a couple of fun things on there that are, are not, uh, you know, that we've been missing the last few months. But either way, uh, that support means a great deal to us, and I am always 
working on providing value over there. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my special guest, Lauren McCaffrey. Don't drink alone. <laughs> That's what addicts like Senlin do. Yeah, apparently. Yikes. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.